Last week I tried to answer two questions. Why were there two Koreas in existence, capable of going to war with each other 65 years ago? What were the key developments which led to traditional Korean unity becoming the potentially bitter division between North Korea and South Korea? We saw how the abrupt end of the Second World War brought about the equally abrupt end of Japanese colonial rule in America, with the Americans imposing and the Russians accepting the 38th parallel as the border between the American and the Soviet Union's zones of occupation in Korea. Now comes the hard part. Did those two territorial impositions prevent the restoration of one Korea? Millions of Koreans yearned deeply for and even expected a quick transition from colonialism to independence and that the new dividing line between North and South on the 38th parallel would quickly disappear. But it never did. It's still there today. The only slight change was that after the Korean War, the 38th parallel itself did cease to be the frontier between the two Koreas. Under the Korean armistice, it was replaced by the more complex, demilitarized zone straggling across the peninsula from southwest of the 38th parallel to northeast of the 38th parallel. Two Koreas remained in place. The DMZ was not a temporary dividing line, but it became, in effect, an international frontier, a standing affront to Korean national aspirations. So what really happened? Did the search for one Korea impose the developing Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union upon Korea? Or was it more that the realities of the superpower's global Cold War simply made the restoration of Korean unity absolutely impossible? Even today, hard and fast answers are elusive. In 1945-46, the return of two particular Korean exiles to their homeland is a very critical part of the story. On October the 10th, 1945, a month after the Japanese surrendered to the Americans on September the 9th in Seoul, a Russian cargo ship brought Kim Il-sung and 66 of his fellow exiles back to the North Korean port of Wonsan. Not much is known about Kim's five- or six-year sojourn in the Soviet Far East after being forced to flee from Manchuria. In 1942, the Russians assigned Kim to the Habarovsk Infantry Officers' School, where he was quickly made a captain and installed as the commander of a new Korean battalion, in what was initially planned to be a multi-ethnic brigade of the Red Army. Kim's job was to train Russian Koreans and his fellow exiles to be cadres in a future Korean People's Army, the KPA. Three academic specialists in this period, in their gripping book, Uncertain Partners, Stalin, Mao and the Korean War, maintain that, quote, throughout the early post-war years, Kim Il-sung was wholly dependent on Moscow and North Korea could be justly called the Soviet satellite. But this is not to say that the Soviets had things all their own way. Although Stalin may have regarded Kim as a puppet, the reality turned out to be far more complex. In fact, Kim was able to use Stalin's trust for his own aims, even as Stalin was using him, unquote. Soon after Kim Il-sung's return, Stalin indicated his appreciation of Kim's ability to serve the Soviet Union. 
Another popular North Korean leader at that time was a Christian politician, Cho Man-sik, who evidently viewed the Russian occupation of North Korea as being very much in the same oppressive pattern as the previous Japanese colonial occupation. Cho was in charge of the embryonic Korean administration set up in North Korea after the Japanese surrender. Russian military advisers quickly dubbed Cho as being too nationalistic and potentially antagonistic. Kim, on the other hand, took care to cultivate the advisers and to conceal his nationalism from them. Stalin quickly agreed to Cho being purged in January 1946, along with the government he was trying to nurture in North Korea. Stalin also agreed that Kim Il-sung should be supported. Kim quickly became the first secretary of the reviving North Korean Communist Party. Crucially, Kim believed, right from his days in Habarovsk, that pan-Korean unity should be imposed. As one of his Habarovsk colleagues later recalled, Kim never believed in Korea's peaceful unification. He never had such an idea. He only stuck to the idea of armed reunification. For Stalin, anxious to expand the Soviet sphere of influence in East Asia and to both unify and control Korea, if possible, Kim was the perfect choice. The Soviet leader was looking for the perfect Korean stooge and thought he had found one. The Americans needed a puppet too, but they had not been looking very hard. The other exile who arrived back in South Korea six days after Kim Il-sung landed in the north was already a veteran of Korean exile politics, as well as having been a long-time resident in Hawaii. Singman Rhee had been imprisoned for seven years by the Korean government in 1898 before going to the United States for further study. After that, Rhee had briefly returned to Korea to see whether, under the Japanese colonial government, there was any hope for democratic development. He found that there wasn't. In 1919, as the First World War ended, Rhee was appointed president of the Provisional Korean Government, set up in the French concession in Shanghai to represent overseas Koreans in Manchuria, China and Siberia. After six years as president, during which the provisional government gained no foreign recognition, Rhee then spent much of the 1920s and 1930s either back in Hawaii or else in Washington, D.C., trying and failing to get his creation a Korean commission recognized by the U.S. government. But Rhee did become well-known as a leading Korean nationalist, so that when Douglas MacArthur's occupation administration looked around for a potential Korean leader after the war, Sigmund Rhee was naturally recommended. But Rhee was never the perfect choice as far as the Americans were concerned. On the one hand, they quickly became aware of his strong authoritarian impulses. On the other hand, he always pushed hard for what he perceived to be the South Korean interest. So when, for example, the United States Air Force introduced jet fighters into their Far East Air Force, Rhee nagged General MacArthur to give some old propeller-driven aircraft to boost South Korea's fighters. Anxious lest reuse the planes to strafe his own people, MacArthur replied that he was not authorised to make such a deal. The immediately post-war years, in which Kim Il-sung and Sigmund Rhee sought to make their way, were a highly confused period in Korean politics, to say the least. 
First and last, there was the constant tension between what the military occupations were willing to concede and what the Koreans sought to attain. Thus, on September the 6th, 1945, leftist politicians in Seoul proclaimed the setting up of a Korean People's Republic six days before the United States Army military government in Korea proclaimed itself as the sole legal authority south of the 38th parallel. The generally right-wing politicians who had been forming Korean provisional governments over the years, even as they had to move from Shanghai to Chongqing due to the exigencies of life in China, now sought to proclaim their government in Seoul, but were told by the Americans that they could only return to Korea as individuals, but not as a collective group. One is left with the clear impression that given the undoubted vitality of Korean politicians, a great deal could have been achieved if only the Americans could have sent a well-informed, flexible and politically adroit proconsul to Seoul. Instead of doing that, on October the 21st, 1945, the State Department announced that since Korea was not yet ready for self-government, a period of trusteeship would be necessary Countering this political paternalism, on October the 25th, 1945, the Grand Conference for the Acceleration of Korean Independence, formed under Syngman Rhee's chairmanship, supported the use of the Korean Provisional Government to set up a transitional regime which would then hold all Korean elections, leading to the creation of a national government and then, most important, the removal of the 38th parallels a temporary dividing line. An adept proconsul would have said, yes, please. Instead, the Americans, British and Russians, acted more in line with the late President Franklin Roosevelt's expressed idea that Korea should be placed under a 40-year tutelage. By the time of the Yalta Conference in February 1945, Roosevelt, during a meeting with Stalin, reduced the necessary period for American-Soviet-Chinese trusteeship in Korea to between 20 and 30 years, still a long period. Stalin replied that the shorter period would be much better. He also suggested that Britain should be one of the trustees. The truth was that Koreans were wholly opposed to any trusteeship being imposed, though the Korean communists did try at one stage to use the complex trusteeship diplomacy to secure a pan-Korean communist government. That diplomacy, arising from the Russo-American-British summit in Moscow in December 1945 and the attempts to energize a joint American-Soviet commission, basically got nowhere. There was no period of tutelage. There was no trusteeship. The two Koreas went their separate ways. The 38th parallel and then the demilitarized zone remained in place. In several ways, the looming Cold War made it inevitable. But historian David Rees adds an important might have been, quote, if all the Korean political parties had been able to agree on an independence program in the first few months of the occupation, the Soviet Union might have accepted an all-Korean administration as they did in somewhat differing circumstances in Austria. But what slim chance existed of such a solution in Korea must have been dissipated by the clear disunity of the Korean political parties." Unquote. 
Having failed to get rid of the 38th parallel by political beans, it was inevitable that there were three attempts to get rid of it during the Korean War. All of them failed. First, the initial North Korean invasion of South Korea, backed by the Russians, drove the Americans and the South Koreans down the peninsula into a small bridgehead around the port of Busan. Heroic defence prevented the North completing its victory. Then MacArthur's historic landing at Incheon led to a complete reversal of fortune as the Americans and the Koreans swept through the 38th parallel through North Korea to Pyongyang on up towards the Yalu River and the Chinese border. Diplomatic restraint might have preserved that victory, but nobody thought of that in time. Instead, thirdly, the Chinese entered the war, briefly swept through the 38th parallel and recaptured Seoul, but did not hold all of their gains and were driven back to what became and remains today the demilitarized zone, the DMZ. Three attempts to establish an undivided career, but none succeeded. The war ended very close to where it began. Meanwhile, both Kim Il-sung and Sigmund Rhee survived the turmoil and the confusion. Rhee was elected president and took office when the Republic of Korea was established on August 15, 1948. He was re-elected several times after that, but in 1960 the excessive rigging of, of his fourth re-election provoked a popular uprising which only ended when a CIA plane came and took Rhee back to his residence in Hawaii, where he died five years later. Kim Il-sung became the Prime Minister when North Korea was established on September the 9th, 1948. Increasingly known as the Great Leader, Kim stayed in that post for 24 years until being elevated to the presidency in 1972 until his death in 1994 when he received a final promotion, becoming the world's only eternal president. Massive statues of Kim Il-sung and now of his son Kim Jong-il dominate the Pyongyang skyline and the disposal of them could become a problem if and when one day Korea is finally reunited. <laughs>